murdered and missing indigenous people, boarding schools, incarceration. These are the kinds of things that have had severe and traumatic impacts on Alaska Natives and American Indians for generations. Today, we're talking about healing in its many different forms, from the U.S. Justice Department to the National Native Boarding School Healing Coalition to local ceremonies that garner national attention. Join us for a discussion on healing right after the news. From the 2023 Alaska Federation of Natives Convention in Anchorage, Alaska, I'm Jill Freitas. An exhibit opened Wednesday night at the Denina Convention Center that looks at the work of Bill Hess and his 40 years of photographing Alaska Native veterans. KMBA's Rhonda McBride was there for the opening. Before you enter the main convention hall, large panels with portraits and candid photographs line the way. Actually, when you walk in, it draws you in. Wanda Solomon Parsons came dressed in uniform. She served two tours of duty in Afghanistan and was struck by how the photos evoke the spirituality of serving your country. It draws you into a story and it draws you into a personal life of an Alaskan Native veteran that served. We all have a story to tell. And along with the photographs, you can read about each veteran's life. I capture what I see and feel. And the feeling is every bit as important as the eye. Bill Hess says this exhibit showcases photographs of more than 60 veterans, called from four decades of pictures that he snapped at veteran ceremonies, as well as sit-down portraits of vets he met along the way. I don't feel like I've photographed near enough, actually. But long enough to know that Alaska Native veterans don't get near enough appreciation. Out of all the ethnic groups in the country, Alaska Natives have among the highest rate of service. And yet, as a people, Hess says they've been treated terribly. These are Alaska Native indigenous people willing to put their life on the line for a country that took it upon itself to subsume most of their country. But it's still their country. From the Guard to Vietnam to the Persian Gulf Wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, the exhibit shows how this legacy of service has been passed down across the generations. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. The 2023 AFN Citizen of the Year Award went to Kodiak resident Margaret Roberts on Thursday. She was nominated by the Woody Island Tribal Council and was selected by the AFN Board of Directors. She passed away in July of last year and has been praised by communities all over Alaska for her tireless dedication to the Aleutic language and dance, as well as advocating for the rights of Aleutic people and Alaskans. Born and raised in Kodiak, Roberts was known for her leadership. She served on boards for many tribal councils, including the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act Corporation, as well as other nonprofit organizations. Roberts' daughters joined the presenters and the Aleutic Dancers, a dance group Roberts created on stage. Leslie Ann Heglin, Roberts' oldest daughter, spoke of her mother's tireless commitment to her people and corporations, even while fighting cancer and just having had surgery. She tells me she leaves that Sunday to Seattle for housing meetings and conference. I said, what? 
Mom, you just got back from surgery. What are you thinking? You can't go. You're still weak. Mom went. It was about a week later. She looked just exhausted. Mom had selflessness and worried about everyone. Hagelin said Roberts also fought for the Aleutic language to be taught in her daughter's school. And it did happen. Sammy had four years of Aleutic language in high school. Robert's youngest daughter, Lacey Roberts, spoke with emotion about the void her mother left when she passed. She left behind a beautiful legacy. She is our first thought each day and our last thought before we go to sleep each night. Our lives were forever changed the day that she passed. She taught us to be proud of who we are, and we hope and pray that she will forever watch over us and that she's proud of us, and that we have managed to learn how to navigate through each day without her. After Robert's daughters accepted the award, the Kodiak Aleutic Dance Group performed a native dance to honor the memory of the woman who made it possible for them to be up on the stage that day. Roberts was known in her Aleutic language as the one who dances. In Anchorage, I'm Jill Freitas. The AFN Newscast is produced by KMBA and Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with support from the Atwood Foundation, ConocoPhillips, Manilak Association, South Central Foundation, Chalista Corporation, Rasmussen Foundation, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Donlin Gold, the Siri Foundation, and ExxonMobil. This is a production of KMBA, Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service. Welcome to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez from the Denina Center in Anchorage. We're at the Alaska Federation of Natives Convention. And today, we're talking about justice and healing in its many different forms. Alaska Natives and American Indians have been disproportionately affected by the legacy of boarding schools and continue to struggle with high numbers of murdered and missing people. We're talking about efforts to address some of these issues from the U.S. Justice Department to local ceremonies that garner national attention. And joining me today is Ingrid Cumberland. I'm sorry, I messed up your name. <laughs> Go, ahead <and laughs> Go ahead and introduce yourself. <laughs> Ong Ong, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Heike, actually, meaning uh, dog salmon uh, in my Nungan language, Klonkagunt in my Klinkit language, in Ingrid Cumberledge in English. Um, I'm from Sandpoint originally, and my parents are Dick and Edith Jacobson. Uh, my my grandparents are Ivy and John Jacobson from, from Sandpoint, and maternal grandparents are Ivy, uh, um, Carmel Demer- Widmark and Alfred Widmark from Cloak and Juneau. Um, and I am the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Person Coordinator in the U.S. Attorney's Office. All right. Thank you for that. And also joining us is Emily Edenshaw, uh, President and CEO of the Alaska Native Heritage Center. Welcome, and please introduce yourself. Good morning, and it's such an honor to be on this panel. My name is Emily Edenshaw. I'm Yupik and Anupiak. My family comes from Imanic, Alaska, and I've had the honor to serve as the President and CEO of the Alaska Native Heritage Center for the last four years. Um, and <clears throat> I will say, though, my most important job is that I'm a mom, um, and outside of work, I'm a fifth-year Ph.D. student, and my entire Ph.D. has focused on Alaska Native boarding school experiences. So thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. And also, um, 
Brian Wilson, who is the Executive Assistant U.S. Attorney and Tribal Liaison for the U.S. Department of Justice. Welcome. Please introduce yourself. Thank you very much. Um, it it's really is an honor to be here and, and talk about these issues. I'm, I'm <laughs> sort of a transplant up here. I, I came up here with my family about 14 years ago from North Florida. Um, and, and it's been interesting. My, my grandmother on my mother's side, Dorothy Connolly, was the first public health nurse in a small rural county in um, North Florida. And I traveled around the summers with her a lot. And it's, it's been interesting to see many of the problems I saw back in the 60s in North Florida are continuing up here in Alaska today. And um, I, I've, I felt like I've been able to bring some of that experience up here to it. And it's just been a wonderful time being up here and getting involved in the issues of rural Alaska. Well, thanks for that, Brian. And um, why don't you go ahead and start us off and just tell us a little bit about the role of the Department of Justice and how it's um, working with tribal communities. Um, Yeah, it's been an interesting evolution for our office up here, the District of Alaska. Um, uh, Probably at about 2016, the then U.S. Attorney um, realized that we were doing a great job prosecuting cases in Anchorage, Juneau, and Fairbanks. But we really were just um, not getting out in rural Alaska and prosecuting cases. And so we formed what we called our RAVEN initiative, which is Rural Alaska Anti-Violence Enforcement Network. And we sent um, prosecutors, victim witness specialists, and um, federal agents like Drug Enforcement Administration, FBI, um, Marshal Service, out into the villages to kind of explain where our jurisdiction is. You know, we do not have jurisdiction over every crime that occurs in rural Alaska, but we do want to take advantage of the ones we have. And so we started getting more and more um, cases coming in. But as everyone realizes, I think, you can't just prosecute your way out of this problem. There, It's multifaceted, you know. And, and, and so fortunately, the people in Washington about the same time started realizing this too. And so we had... Um, uh, an MMIP initiative, um, which uh, we were able to hire Ingrid as our MMIP coordinator. You know, the Alaska delegation was very instrumental in, in passing Savannah's Act, which forced law enforcement to begin to work together. And then, of course, we have the um, reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, which have done additional things. And in addition to that, more resources have been brought from the Department of Justice to help address both pre crime activities in the villages that lead to criminal activity and to help victims who suffer after the crime. And so we're just really excited about what's happening. I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but it's we're in a very unique position right now to address holistically the problems of, of violence in rural Alaska. Thanks for that, Brian. And Ingrid, tell us a little bit about your role. Well, I came on in July of um, 2020. And, you know, it was the middle of COVID, um, and they they really wanted me to work with everybody across the state of Alaska. And the goals um, were anticipating Savannah's Act passing. And Savannah's Act um, really has some, some pretty defined goals. You know, uh, it was go out there and build tribal capacity and in responding to... Um, missing and murdered indigenous persons, um, uh, build collaboration and cooperation w- amongst law enforcement and victim services, uh, and all of the stakeholders, the tribes um, and the communities, 
uh, and and everybody that was working in this area. Um, and it, and in addition to that, there were a couple areas in data um, and go out and get some consultation and, and those sorts of things. Um, but we were really locked down, you know. Um, so we formed a working group right away to, to get folks um, talking about these issues. Um, and that includes federal folks. It includes the state uh, Department of Public Safety. It includes tribal members from across the state, uh, a couple of VPSO supervisors, tribal agencies. Um, as we've started doing tribal community response plans to MMIP, those, those folks automatically become members. Um, it includes victim services, non-governmental, tribal, um, and, and governmental agencies. Um, and we meet every two weeks, so we've talked about many issues. We've talked about homeless issues. We've talked about safety, planning, and travel. Um, we've talked about um, responding to MMIP and what you need to respond to MMIP. We've developed a model with those pilot sites who, who developed that initial tribal community response plan, and, and there were three sites that did that initially. Um, and that became one model. And in adding to that, they realized they needed a checklist right at the beginning to respond for that first, you know, one to three hours. And then that first 24 hours, what, what do you do when that happens? Um, and we've been able to work with other partners. So AVCP um, contracted to find out who all those resources were across the state that you could utilize. And as the U.S. Attorney developed their Savannah's guidelines, AVCP said, you can utilize this as a resource on the back. Um, the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center, in partnership with the grassroots organization, developed an MMIW toolkit. Um, and they gave us permission to utilize that as a resource to the model for responding to tribal community response plans. So. Uh, a lot of work and collaboration with all the other partners, um, and and that's that's the biggest partner is getting everybody talking to each other. And Emily Brian had mentioned working with communities um, in a holistic way. Why is that important? Yeah, that's a great question. I think knowing that um, not everyone is at uh, the same point, and knowing that you know what we see on the surface uh, may not be. Um, you know, there's a deeper, um, you know, when we start talking about issues like MMIWG and boarding schools, you know, there is a lot of uh, trauma that's walked with our communities. But what I often say is that there's also a lot of healing um, and uh, strength that also walks with our communities. So when we think holistically, it's not just, um, you know, the the physical injury or the mental the 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 mental side of it there's also a spiritual aspect of it especially when we start talking about um boarding schools you know that this is an issue that it's never been taught in any of our uh schools it's you know even at the collegiate you know level it's never been taught um i know when i started this uh journey through my phd it was a real struggle to find peer-reviewed articles that were led by indigenous peoples. So that was one of my driving motivations was to do this work in partnership with our communities. Um, as Ingrid shared, we need to start talking to each other and just the fact, you know, start speaking about these experiences 
that really is, you know, one step in the right direction. And the reality is, is a lot of our elders who are alive today, as well as the descendants, um, for example, like my grandfather, uh, up until his, his death, he wouldn't speak to me about what happened to him in boarding schools because it was too much. And so we have to understand, you know, there is a holistic approach to this, but meeting our community where they're at and understanding that a lot of people are just now getting to a point to be able to speak to that. And I'm really, really grateful to be doing this work at the Heritage Center because, um, and I don't know, uh, I'm sure Secretary Holland's going to mention it today, the first Road to Healing session is happening on Sunday at the Alaska Native Heritage Center. That's the first time our elders um, and descendants are going to be able to go and uh, share their stories of what happened. And I really do believe that is the first step. Uh, not only is there an acknowledgement from the federal government, but this really is a monumental step towards healing. Uh, so thanks for asking that question. And Ingrid, um, boarding schools and missing and murdered indigenous people are not different. There's still a lot of um, boarding school students who are missing, murdered. Um, there's work to be bringing remains home. So can these two be addressed together and should they be addressed together? Well, certainly there has been a lot of discussion about the historical trauma. As, as we go into communities, um, in our first pilot, we were working with the Chaogian Tribal Council of Dillingham, um, and, and uh, that community raised boarding schools as um, a, a huge concern in, the, in their tra- uh, trauma and, and their story. Matter of fact, we went out to approve their process, and and um, when we got out there, you know, they said, "Come on out, you know, approve the tribal community response plan." And and we got there, and the council looked at it and went, "Nope." And I went, "I'm fired." <laughs> and and really, what it was was they didn't they didn't have they hadn't included that trauma, they hadn't included that history, and. From from boarding schools to to colonization to uh, um, human trafficking to to uh, you know all of the secondary traumas that come with that the substance abuse um, the alcohol abuse all of those things that that have come because of those factors um, and they got to the end of the meeting they did approve the plan um, but they. But they identified somebody off of their team to write that that history um, and to include it in the next meeting and to make sure that it became a part of that path because it was so important to them. Uh, and so certainly we are we are talking about that history and, and talking about how, you know, we identify those, those folks and, and, and bring them back in. Um, we're less involved uh, in in Emily's work and in, in identifying those folks and, and bringing them home. That hasn't been a part of the the work that that I've been doing, but from the historical the impact on on those communities, definitely it's it's been a huge part of that history. And Brian, um, listening to um, Ingrid and and Emily talk. Um, you know, there's we talk about colonization. So, how is the Justice Department working to move beyond a Western form of justice system and meet tribal needs and their cultures? Right, that's a great question. Um, I will say, coming into this from the outside, having no experience in rural Alaska, two things really struck me when I got out into these villages, and 
One is the the presence of the historical trauma. People will talk about things that happened 60 years ago like it was yesterday, and they really still feel that through the generations, and it's just palpable when they talk. The other thing, though, that was kind of a parallel track was both the hope and the resilience of these people. I mean, they are tough people, and they have a lot of hope, and that's what we're really trying to build on now with um, with what we're doing. And I think one of the ways we're trying to address some of the problems in the past is in, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s, you'd have some bureaucrat in Washington say, well, we've studied the issue theoretically and we've developed this plan and here's the plan, boom, it's a cookie-cutter approach all across Alaska or even in the lower 48. What we're trying to do now, and the great thing about this is so much of this is um, for the villages themselves, created by the villages themselves, and like the tribal community response plans, we go into the village we say we're here to help. We provide a framework to talk, but it's their plan. We are also with the um, Alaska um, Tribal Public Safety Commission. We're meeting for the next couple years with natives and, and all law enforcement to develop something that comes up from the ground up that will, we hope will address the, the actual problems on the ground and not those theoretical helicopter problems that the people in Washington so often see. So we are very hopeful that by involving the communities to the extent we are, that we can address a lot of those um, previous problems that we have. And looking beyond prosecution, how else is DOJ responding? Um, we have a ton of grants. Um, um, Associate Attorney General Gupta will be here at the convention this morning. I think she's going to announce some additional grants, but but um, it, it, they administer grants of a it's over several billion dollars a year that go both to address victims of crime and to address some of the problems um, prior to crimes being committed, such as domestic violence, substance and alcohol abuse, and those kind of things. So there are plenty of grants available to the tribes to help address these these issues, and that's what we're trying to do right now. And in addition, we, we're continuing to be out in the villages um, talking and giving, you know, our contact information so that people can be aware of what we can do for them. And Ingrid, um, what do you hear from families when you're talking to communities? What do they want? How do they want this issue to be addressed? You know, we've we've listened all over Alaska. So we we partner with the regional uh, associations here in Alaska, um, and and started that really when I started the work, going out and doing listening sessions, uh, initially virtually, um, and now in person and and in hybrids, um, and and what we what we have heard is we have heard stories like Brian talks about of resilience. Um, of healing and and really of of that um that history you know we've talked about solutions with families um but we've definitely talked about the history of of what those families are walking through and how do we change that narrative how do we change the history and make sure that it is different for the children that are coming now? Um, develop safety plans um, to make sure that that we are creating a safer Alaska. 
that public safety is the expectation that we expect in every community is the expectation that we're going to see all over Alaska. Um, we just had a listening session last night uh, with the Alaska Tribal Public Safety Advisory Committee, um, which was established by, by VAWA, the reauthorization of, of 2022. Um, and, you know, we, we had uh, community members and agency leaders there telling us, you know, this is something we have to do. We, we absolutely need to increase public safety. Um, and we and they're telling us that um, that includes again building that tribal capacity. You know, giving authority um, or supporting that enhanced um, tribal capacity. Um, and and you see some of that in in VAWA that that uh, recognition again of that that jurisdiction that they had that was their concurrent jurisdiction with tribal authority um, and and the different authorities. Uh, and so just recognizing that and and having them exercise that, that's something that we hear a lot from our, our tribal folks. And uh, Emily, these issues, um, boarding schools, uh, MMIP, um, how can like non-Native people come and help with the healing process and have meaningful response? Yeah, you know, I think it's just the first step is understanding that this is a shared history, right? Like, this is not just Alaska Native history. And Alaska Native history is Alaska history, just like Indian country history is U.S. history. And knowing that this is a shared experience, a shared history, um, I think oftentimes the federal government and, and other systems wants to create this narrative. It's like us versus them, and I'm not trying to vilify, but I think there is, you know, we really need to understand that there is a legacy and, you know, a very dark, dark history that walks with every single U.S. citizen in this country. And... When you make that first step of understanding that this didn't just happen to Alaska Native people, this happened to Indigenous peoples all across the country, and you're seeing symptoms of that root cause of the, you know, through MMIWG, and I, through MMIWG, and I will say it's a very personal topic for me. My mother was murdered in 2020. You know, the the grassroots uh, organization that Ingrid is talking about, I'm part of that. And so understanding that this is a, there was a system at play when they were forcing our children, removing our children from their homes, sending them to these institutions where in many cases they were raped, they were physically abused, they were emotionally abused. Um, you know, and just imagine being a seven-year-old, a five-year-old little kid crying out for your parents and them, ne- and them never coming. I think people really need to understand the level of impact that has really caused Indigenous communities. That being said, I think that there are wonderful partnerships that are at play, um, not only on the federal side, but also at the state side. There are also many different organizations that are working together, like the Heritage Center and NABS. And to your question, I think that non-native people can reach out and ask how they can support and listen with an open mind i've got it uh, I, i've received it so many times like well i didn't do this why do i have to take you know the brunt for what you know my forefathers did you know hundreds of years ago 
And my response to that is that it's still happening today. You're seeing some of, you know, as I mentioned, the symptoms of the root cause. And so uh, just like I said, knowing that this is a shared history, knowing that there are organizations out there that are working to bring healing in real time. And we're stronger together. You know, I do believe, you know, um, and hopefully I'll be able to speak to it later. Um, you know, the event that's going to happen on Sunday at the Heritage Center, it's going to be an example of healing in real time. So thanks. And thank you for that, Emily. And yeah, we will definitely want to hear more about that. Um, today we are at the Alaska Federation of Natives Annual Convention, which is taking place in Anchorage, Alaska. We're at the Denina Center, and there's a lot of... Um, talks and meetings going on and today we're talking about looking at um, some justice issues and healing and why that's so important um, for not just the Alaska Native community but the community um, as a whole and you're listening to Alaska's Native Voice we'll be right back Welcome back to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez from the Denina Center in Anchorage, and we are here um, talking about some justice issues and healing. We have some great guests joining us this morning as the convention gets started. And right before the break, we were talking about healing and the importance of um, healing from these issues and having it be from communities, listening to communities, and some of the work that's being done. Um, this week I had a chance to talk to Elder Bob Sam, who does a lot of work on boarding schools, boarding school healing. Um, he, bring, he does a lot of repatriation work, and so he talked about um, how to help people um, with their trauma. As you interview people, they're going to talk about trauma. They're going to talk about pain. They're going to talk about what they went through. But they made it home. They live. There are 30,000 of our people still out there that want to come home. And for the last five years, I've been preparing for them. <laughs> Cleaning graves, finding family plots, finding loved ones, lineal descendants, and letting them know where their loved ones are buried. And I have a laptop that I have of where people are passed away 150 years ago. So I can, I train myself to find bodies. And I train myself to speak in public so that I could articulate myself in such a way that I could talk about this comfortably because our people cannot 
talk about this stuff comfortably. It's, there's taboos involved with it, cultural stuff, but somebody has to bring the body home. And I'm, the, I'm a guy that does this work. I've done it my whole life, and I'm comfortable with it. I, I've touched physical remains and brought them home. I've re-interned them back into the ground, so I have a history of that now. And it's time to pass it down to the next generation because the lineal descendants, they are the ones that have the ultimate authority. They are the ones that, that should be the ones to decide what to do with the body. And it's a very painful job. But as I got older, ceremony has become the most important thing, ceremony. When we bring back our ceremonies or develop a new one for return for a body, our whole spirit begins to change. We used to carry ourselves like a wounded warrior, but when we put our ceremony back into our body, we get energy, we get power, we get indigenous power, we get our back gets straight, our voice gets stronger. It's like our ancestors are coming into us. That's how we should be. And that was Elder Bob Sam talking about some of the healing work and the work that he's doing and just um, talking about ceremony and healing. Emily, um, your thoughts on what Bob had to say. Oh, I love Bob. I've worked with Bob for many years. He's someone that I have so much love and respect for, you know, and I think he really is, you know, I think there's this myth that in order for you to do important work for your community, you have to have a lot of money. Um, and although, you know, I'll be the first one to say, I love grants. So thank you for, to DOJ for making sure that there are more grants, but he is a wonderful. So Bob Sam is a wonderful example of he's really doing his heart's work, you know, and I, I have so much love and respect for him. Um, but his message that, um, he shared about healing, it really is, um, it's, you know, I, I wish I could underscore and highlight it and circle it and just really emphasize uh, and share with people that there are uh, individuals like Bob Sam and organizations like the Alaska Native Heritage Center and other individuals like Norma Jean Dunn uh, who are uh, really trying to lead uh, community-driven work um, with healing at the center. And uh, an example of that is Norma Jean Dunn reached out to the Alaska Native Heritage Center about two years ago and she said, Emily, I, w- I, I want us to have a healing pool dedicated to every single Alaska Native boarding school survivor who is alive and who has passed on. Um, although she's from Southeast, um, she wanted to have this pool dedicated uh, on Denina lands uh, 
to every single Alaska Native person. And so if you know, if you know uh, Norma Jean, you know that she's not asking. Uh, she is, and she won't take no for, uh, for an answer. And so uh, for me, that was really uh, motivation and fire to um, make sure that this gets done, not only not only in her lifetime, but in my lifetime as well. Um, my understanding is that there's never been a poll uh, specifically dedicated for, board, for boarding school survivors um, in the country. And so uh, she reached out to the Heritage Center, and then we reached out to Sea Alaska Corporation and uh, funding partners. And I will say that the universe, everything has fallen into place. And it is a height of poll. It's going to be raised on Sunday, October 22nd, right after the listening session. And we're going to have a healing, um, you know, a healing ceremony as well as a potlatch starting at 4 p.m. Um, but I will say, and this is something um, that I've learned through this process, is, you know, the, uh, like what the poll represents, it's supposed to bring people together. And just going through this process and this planning uh, to raise the poll, I'm not Haida. I'm also not Denina. Uh, so it's been a huge learning curve for me, uh, as well as it's provided an opportunity to work hand in hand with culture bears literally from all over the globe. Um, and so if you're in Anchorage on Sunday, uh, please come to the Heritage Center. We're going to have a huge, like I said, a huge potlatch, um, not a potluck, a potlatch. Uh, and it really is, like I said, just a beautiful example of how we're working with our community uh, to bring healing in real time. And I will end with this. Um, I had a gentleman uh, just about a week ago. I was in our Hall of Cultures at the Heritage Center. And coincidentally, I, was, um, I wasn't supposed to be in Anchorage that day. And um, I was in my museum or in the Heritage Center Museum that day. And he came in. His name is Chief, um, Chief Bill. He is the son of the last fluent uh, EAC speaker. He came in and he said, you know, I've been following the poll. Um, I'm from Valdez. I drove in. I wanted to see the poll. And just to see that level of, you know, it really is bringing people from, like I said, literally all over the globe. People are flying in from Canada for this, um, as well as people from all over Alaska to participate in this. Um, and in that visit with Chief Bill, he looked at me and he said, Emily, I, we need a veterans healing monument. We need a veterans poll. Um, and I reached out to a funder and I'm very proud to share that um, not only did my our funder fully agree to fund the veterans poll, I, I also asked him for funding for an MMIWG poll. So I'll end on that note. Well, thank you, Emily, and thanks for joining us today. Um, Emily Edenshaw, the president and CEO of the Alaska Native Heritage Center. Thanks yeah. for being here. Thanks for having me. And uh, Ingrid, just listening to Emily and um, the work that she's doing with healing and making it really part of the community, um, what do you think of the MMIP Healing Pool? Oh, I am so excited to hear about that, Emily. Thank you so much. Um, we're looking forward to, to seeing the work on that. Um, and uh, we are looking forward to the boarding school poll as well this weekend. And and Norma actually went to school with my, my folks, so I'm familiar with that force as well. So, um, But I have to say, uh, Bob... Bob Sam and some of his reflection, one of the things that we hear with, with MMIP is the, you know, the real hesitation to, to not share that data, to not share those stories. And, 
and and we we have really struggled over the last couple of years as as we've gone out to and, and to create a forum where people felt comfortable and safe to be able to share and as they have started to do that they're they're starting to find a place to to allow them to to start to heal and to to start thinking about you know that grieving process and that ceremony he mentioned ceremony you know in so many of our cultures our culture has been impacted so much that the ceremony is missing a little bit and and you know we're at a point where you almost have to rebuild the ceremony in in some some of our places particularly the Aleutians the Aleutians went down to a counted 900 at some point you know, whereas my family in, in the Clinkett side um, has a really developed ceremony, my Aleutian family doesn't know how to grieve. You know, so um, when they when they call about their missing and murdered, it's it's a really it's a tough deal. Uh, and and so I listen to to his words, and they have really been important in this process as we talk about our missing and murdered. And also part of the healing is using your culture, using language, um, all Alaska Native cultures, languages, and, and art. And I had a chance to talk to artist Amber Webb, who has this um, large cuss buck. And it's it's not here right now currently. It's traveling around. But it's, it's raising awareness to the public about missing and murdered indigenous women. We all have those experiences of violence. And that, this giant cuss buck with all of these portraits is representational of thousands and thousands and thousands of women who have experienced violence. So we have this thing that we do where we lift up people after they've been victimized, after they've been, after they're no longer here and we're not doing anything sometimes to help the people who are struggling now with experiences of violence. So what that led me to was like understanding the responsibility of carrying those stories because I will never forget. When I see somebody's picture, I remember their story and I will never forget the women on that bus book. And that was Amber Webb, an artist who um, who uh, hand draws portraits of missing and murdered indigenous women on this very large cuss book that um, is not here right now, but um, it has been featured at AFN and Elders and Youth in the past. So, um, Ingrid, I'll start with you. Go ahead and just your reflection on Amber. And you and you can't you can't even imagine I, I, on radio. It's hard to describe this cuspuck because it is larger than life, um, and has often been at the Alaska Museum. But we had the pleasure of meeting Amber Webb um, initially as as part of our tribal community response plan team in the first pilot project in Chagan Tribal Council of Dillingham. Um, and I knew Amber's mom because I had worked with her aunt. And they, uh, Amber is a force to be reckoned with in this, this fight against missing and murdered. And she really brought voice to the, the, 
these missing and, and murdered women. You know, she she went out and she did what I was talking about. Those those um, missing and murdered women that didn't didn't have voice. She went out and found that data that wasn't necessarily captured in the clearinghouse in the public safety clearinghouse. She was individually going and getting it from families, and she was individually collecting those pictures, and she was then drawing them and putting them on the cusbuck and um, and. And so what we're asking is that in addition to keeping that grassroots movement going and get that grassroots data, that now we start also capturing it in real time and getting it into the clearinghouse and getting it into the national data and getting it into NamUs because individuals can enter it into NamUs. Individuals and tribes can enter it into NamUs. And that helps build that data, but it also helps us to, to work on solving some of those situations um, and, and, and cases. And Amber has, has really sparked that interest. You know, she's raised that awareness, but she's also made increased the ability and comfort for start having those conversations. And she's just, she's an amazing person. She and her sister were incredible on that team. Um, and and it was just a pleasure to work with them. And, and Brian, I know you met you met them as well. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, they were really wonderful. So yep, go ahead, Brian. Um, well, one of the things interesting is both of them talked about ceremony, and I think what has been really great about these listening sessions is it's not just Ingrid and I go, and our our law enforcement partners go with us, and the particularly the Alaska State Troopers and the Marshal Service have been to just about every listening session, and. I, I think it's a really great group of law enforcement right now who are very sensitive to these problems, and they want to try to rectify some of the problems in the past. But we've heard about how sometimes a, a typical law enforcement response is it goes totally against a, um, one of the cultures, you know, of the of the dead person or whatever. And and so that has been a really integral part of the listening session is for people in the villages to tell law enforcement. Here's how you can change. To you don't affect the investigation, but you affect you help the families, the grieving ones, um, process that grief better. And one of the things about the Savannah's Act guidelines is it by law now it's forcing us all the law enforcement partners to get together and address what are culturally appropriate responses to a crime. How do we culturally appropriately um, help victims and um, take care of the remains of any deceased. And so that's a very exciting part. It, it's it's um, something that I'm very surprised that the people in Washington thought about, but it, it really has been a very, um, a very core part of our listening sessions is for the law enforcement to hear how they can just make very small changes to their procedures and yet make great impacts on the, the victims and the families of the victims. And Brian, um, Amber is bringing attention and making sure that these women are not forgotten. And it's usually the families, advocates, who are the ones making sure that these cases don't get lost, that their family member, their missing or murdered family member, the attention is kept on them. So how um, can the DOJ make sure that every case is not forgotten? Well, one of the ways we can do that is by trying to get accurate data um, on the, the extent of the missing and murdered person's problem. 
And be, the data, it's just numbers. But what we realize is behind every number, every single piece of data are multitudes of grieving people. And so by keeping better data, we can get a better idea of the extent of the problem and even how we can best address the problem. So I, it, that's been a probably for Ingrid and me the biggest challenge. We thought it would be just a, a matter of, you know, changing a few computer keystrokes and but boy, that that has been far more difficult than any other issue we face. But I think once we can get on top of the data, we know the extent of the problem, and then we can begin to address the the individual issues of how that data starts dividing itself. And I have to say, you know, our our um, uh, Department of Public Safety and the Alaska State Troopers in their in their Alaska Public Safety Information Network. You know, in Savannah's Act, we made some recommendations that came from the entire group and all of that consultation that we did across all the stakeholders, um, including our tribes and tribal groups. And, and the recommendations were, you know, we can't identify who is Alaska Native. We can't identify who is American Indian. Um, we can't identify what village they came from. We can't identify what region they came from. And, and they took those recommendations and they, they changed the clearinghouse completely. They identified that they're, where they could identify, they identified that they're Alaska Native. They identified that they are American Indian. They identified what community they, they came from, if they could find that. Um, they identified where the incident came from, you know, what region it came from. And so uh, just in a couple short years to, to be able to, to, to look at the data from, from the clearinghouse and, and to see those changes has really changed the landscape. Uh, you know, and as everywhere we go, we encourage folks to make sure that they're reporting because, um, you know, every village we go into, somebody tells us about something. I'm like, please, please report. Because as we, as we gather that, you know, if you're holding the data, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't show up. You know, you know, and we need to make sure that all of the data is collected and reflected, and and um, and between the two. So if we're if we're collecting it at the state level, that that means that we're collecting it at the national level as well. Um, and and the 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 changes are remarkable, um, they, and they've just happened in such a short amount of time from these conversations starting. Can you give an example of, of that, like something that the data has helped change? Well, I think I, I, think I just did. So I'm going I'm okay. to just, <laughs> just try and say that again. So, so when I came on board, um, you know, one of the first mandates was, you know, identify who, how many Alaska Natives are missing. And so I pull up the only, the only registry that we have in the state of Alaska, which is the clearinghouse at the, the Alaska Department of Public Safety. Um, and and really NCIC, which is the, the FBI registry as well, and and I look for indigenous people, and there is no identification, um, and that's 2020, and right now I can look up the clearinghouse at the Alaska Public Safety Information Network, and everybody that they can possibly identify is identified if they are Alaska Native. It is 2023. So from 2020 to 2023, they have identified everybody that they can possibly identify that is Alaska Native or American Indian. Um, and if they've misidentified, you just call them. They they will try to identify. So they're working really, really hard. They put extra staff on. 
Um, they've added tribal liaisons. They've added tribal navigators to, to the Alaska State Troopers to, to try and, and encourage that communication. Those navigators, um, when an incident happens, those folks are working with um, families so that they can help increase the communication with the investigators and the families as that investigation is going on and as it goes to court um, to help those families as they move forward. Uh, and so, so even increasing the data at that end. Um, and so, so we're now capturing that they are Native, but not only that they are Native, but where they're connected to, where their families are connected to, and where the incident is connected to. Um, and that's huge. I mean, and we're talking three years. I, I, that's, that's big. You know, and and um, we didn't have any of that. And one of the most interesting basic examples were one of these computer databases. It had a, a box for um, Alaska Native and a box for U.S. Citizen. And it, if you clicked one, you couldn't click the other. So you could not be a U.S. Citizen and an Alaska Native in that database. And so, you know, naturally they're probably going to click U.S. Citizen. And so that underreports just a whole bunch of data. And... It's those basic kind of things that we're being able to address now. And that's the NCIC. So that's the federal database that has now changed, and they only had the big tribes in there. And now the federal database has all the 500-plus tribes are listed in a Dropbox, and it's, they've separated it from U.S. So you can select U.S. citizen, and you can select your tribe. There still needs to be some communication with those state databases to figure out how to make that connection between state and federal. But, but lots of things happening there. And we're getting to our end of the show here. We have just a few more minutes, but um, maybe we can just talk a little bit about what's next and what, what do you hope for the future? Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we're, that we're going to continue building those relationships. You know, I have to say um, we have built some really amazing relationships with the tribes and agencies across the state of Alaska, but also with the Alaska State Troopers and their willingness to work with all those agencies and the victim services across the state of Alaska. Um, we're going to be at BIA Providers here coming up at the end of November. Uh, there's a cross-training between law enforcement and victim services. Um, during that training, there's a training on tribal community response plans. Uh, there's a training on the VAWA and the pilot projects during that time. Um, and, Brian, more hopes for the future? Yeah, I, one of the things that I, I was really gave me a lot of hope was yesterday's listening session for the um, Alaska uh, Tribal Public Safety Commission was well, here we have the commissioner of um, DPS, Jim Cockrell, and he's on a first name basis with almost every tribal member that came to that thing. And they all came up and gave him a hug. I don't think he would have seen that 20 or 30 years ago. And, and that to me is the relationships are going to outlast any grant or any program that we, we create. And that's what we're really hoping to do is to create personal relationships to build for the future. And is that, explain how important that is for tribes to make sure that they have a personal relationship and feel like they're working together and not being told what to do. You know, when we, when we first came on, that was the biggest question. You know, I, we don't know who to call, and when we call, we were, we're told to call back and, and um and we have gotten numbers of people to call, and we also in Savannah's Act identified myself as the federal resource coordinator. And so if they don't know how to, how to call, they can reach out to me, and I can help facilitate those relationships. 
but it is so important when you're in trouble and things are hurting and um, you need to be able to reach out to somebody. And uh, so having those relationships with the Alaska State Troopers and the U.S. Marshals and the, the FBI and the, the, the uh, BIA Missing and Murdered Unit, those, those are really important relationships to be able to know that you can reach out to somebody and get some help. The United States Coast Guard. Um, you know, the, the Victims for Justice, the, 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 all those victim agencies, the, the, the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center, the uh, Alaska Native Justice Center, you know, those folks that can, that can come and give you support when you need support. Um, those are really important things because you don't even know what you need. And your family is in trauma when, when events happen. And, and so that's, that's just crucial. I would say that's the mo- most important thing when an event is happening. And, and just um, to expand on that, we have about a minute left. Um, so where can people go if there's somebody listening right now? Where, where should they? What's the first step? Where can they go? Like, You know, always I would say call 911. Um, and if they can't do that, they can always reach out to me. Uh, they can reach out to, to ingrid.cumberledge at usdoj.gov. Um, and and are the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and look for us there. That's that's a good place to go. And um, any final thoughts as we wrap up our show today, Brian? Um, well, just how much hope I have. I, we've had several uh, tribal leaders say this is a once-in-a-generational opportunity, and I think you see a lot of local forces and national forces coming together to really try to make a difference and try to make a difference by listening to what the local people need and responding to that as opposed to this top-down approach that you've seen in the past. Well, I want to thank you both for being here today and um, joining us on Alaska's Native Voice. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. And uh, thank you to our producer, um, Emily Schwing. Thank you to our other guest and all the people that we interviewed for the show. Um, We'll be back tomorrow. Hope everyone has a great day. You've been listening to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. AFN, Alaska's Native Voice, produced and directed by Antonia Gonzalez and Emily Schwing. Broadcast support provided by the Atwood Foundation, ConocoPhillips, Manilik Association, South Central Foundation, Chalista Corporation, Rasmussen Foundation, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Donlin Gold, the Siri Foundation, and ExxonMobil. This is a production of KMBA, Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.